Well, first of all, I carry the greetings of Amiam Park Chapel. Of course, that uh, congregation now includes one who was yours. <laughs> Still is yours, <laughs> but Benemi. So April 2022... Benemi still would have been in membership here in this church. Well, since you would all know, he's joined us, and that's a, a great thing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to invite you now to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And before we read it, um, Tim and I didn't brief each other. We're going to look at uh, at least one of the responses to... Uh, Christ and the gospel in, in, in this passage, and we're going to also look at um, um, just treetop level, as it were, treetop level, mountaintop level, look, look at the other responses that surround, all right, uh, the one that we're going to look at. But it's Matthew chapter 11, if you will have your Bibles open there, and we'll read the entire chapter, and those who have church Bibles will find... Um, Matthew 11 on page 1,123 or thereabouts. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
but wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray briefly. Our God in heaven, we bow again in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know of no greater thing than to be led through the corridors of truth, and that by our tutor, the Holy Spirit. Grant him, we pray. Make the print on the page live. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Alright, so what have we got here? We've got a chapter of responses, and I reiterate the point that we did not brief each other, Tim or I, and I certainly have no control over the consecutive readings in this church. Uh, verses 1 to 24. Verses 1 to 24 describe five responses to Christ. And those of you with red letter versions of the scriptures like I have here in the pulpit, which I would have pulled out at the door uh, from the shelves there, you're going to say, but Christ is speaking for most of the chapter. How can we have five responses to Christ, at least in those 24 verses? He may be speaking for most of the chapter. But implicit to what he says are still five responses to him and the gospel about him. All right, there are still five different responses to Christ in Christ's words. Let's run through them. In verses 1 to 6, we have the doubt of John the Baptist as he languishes in prison. That's all I'm going to say, all right? In verses 7 to 11, and then we skip a few verses, and 13 to 15, we have the curiosity of the crowd. So we have the doubt of John the Baptist as he languishes in prison. Secondly, verses 7 to 11, and 13 to 15, we have the curiosity of the crowds. The curiosity of the crowds driven in the past when they went to listen 
to John, who's now in prison, driven in the past when they went to listen to John. Now as they follow Jesus, they're driven by a, a mixture, a cocktail of motives, good and bad. Now for those verses nested that we jumped or leapfrogged, nested, nested within verses 7 to 15, all right, in verse 12. Well, the verse we jumped over, not the verses. In verse 12 is the violence of the persuaded. Now, you will forgive me. I'm going to deliberately use language during the rest of the sermon, which does justice to Jesus' words. All right? All right? The violence of the persuaded. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers what? It suffers violence. Now, other translations put it slightly differently, but you end up in the same place. All right? Suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. We're coming back to these words. This is where our focus will lie. This is where we're going to land this morning. But carrying on. So we have the doubt of John the Baptist. We have the curiosity of the crowds. We have the violence of the persuaded. And then in verses 16 to 19, we have the offense of the world. The offense of the world. And then verses 20 to 24, we have the indifference. Just pure indifference. Indifference of a number of cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Tyre and Sidon, Jesus says, will find it easier on the day of judgment than Chorazin and Bethsaida. And the indifference of Capernaum, Jesus says, outdoes Sodom's Guilt makes you think, doesn't it? So we have doubt, curiosity, violence, offense, and indifference. Five things. And the same family of responses exist today. And we could add the responses we saw earlier in the consecutive reading of Scripture. It's an ancient book, but it speaks to today but there's another response verses 25 and 26 we have another response notice how verse 25 starts at that time Jesus answered all right this isn't a a response of men to Christ it's of Christ to his father at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for, it, for so it seemed good in your sight. So the mixed response, the mixed response that Christ receives from men and women and boys and girls um, isn't because the message of the gospel of Christ is defective in any way. There's a mixed response, but it's not because it's defective in any way. Yes, it's poorly preached and also by less than ideal messengers. But that's not the real reason for the doubt, the offense, the indifference, the, the what have you, all right, that we see as we stand as witnesses to Christ and the gospel 
of that glorious Christ. The mixed response has everything to do with an innate born with, an innate inability of men and women and boys and girls to see Christ for who he really is. Mankind is by nature, as Christ puts it in verse 25, wise and prudent in its own eyes. And you know what it's like when people think they know everything. (laughs) They don't see or hear anything. It takes the teachable and the unprejudiced eyes of a little child to see the kingdom of heaven and its king, Jesus Christ. And just to make a number of other points, that sight, that sight is a gift. First of all, it's a sovereign gift of grace. Verse 26, for so it seemed good in your sight, he says to his father. All right? Spiritual sight, an ability to see the, see the king, Jesus Christ, for who he is, is a sovereign gift of grace. For so it seemed good in your sight. Verse 26, but it's also, and I know these words are tricky, but we must face Scripture as it stands. It's also a selective gift of grace. Second part of verse 27. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now there's a crushing blow to evangelism, huh? Not at all. Just... Look at what Christ goes on to say immediately after recognizing that spiritual sight is a sovereign gift and a selective gift of grace. He goes on to say, and we love these words, Come to me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn for me. These are familiar words, aren't they? But we never cease to stop loving them. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest That's what we're all looking for, rest. Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Introduction is going to be tied up now, all right? Okay? Salvation might lie in God's hands. God's hands alone. But the sinner's duty, the unbeliever's duty, is not to determine whether they are chosen or not before they respond. The sinner's duty is to hear the winsome invitation and to respond readily. So we have five responses to Christ and then we have Christ's response to his father and on the back of that mixed response of men and women and boys and girls to himself, all right, that's his, sorry, we have Christ's response to his father on the back of the mixed response of men and women and boys and girls to himself and then lastly we have that winsome and that indiscriminate invitation and offer. That's Matthew chapter 11. Now for our focus, verse 12. Let's read it again. Let's read it again. We want these words to sink in, to soak in. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, Christ does two things in those words. First of all, he commends John the Baptist 
And then secondly, he commends violence. I think I have your ears. First, Jesus commends John the Baptist. And commendation is deserved. Now we're just going to reverse a few verses, all right? See the context of verse 12. John is languishing in prison. His faith has faltered. And faith falters when we don't join the dots, doesn't it? When we don't interpret the pleasant, more particularly the unpleasant present in the light of the the big story. And in this instance, he's languishing in prison. What's the important part of the big story? It's suffering and then glory. Always has been, always will be until Christ comes again. The believer's life is cross-shaped. I won't develop on that. John, through his disciples, asks, verse 3, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? In other words, are you the one promised? And Jesus sends word back, verses 4 to 6. We jump over verses 4 to 6. Then, as John's disciples, verse 7, and we read, departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And lest they condemn John, Jesus does four things. First, he confirms John's identity. John is the promised forerunner, he says. He's the Elijah promised by Malachi. And we won't look at verses 10 to 14 because that's in there. Secondly, so Jesus confirms John's identity. Secondly, Jesus exalts John's place in the history of redemption. Notice his words, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, that's quite a position, all right? So first, he confirms John's identity. Secondly, he exalts John's place in the history of redemption. And then thirdly, John qualifies John's place in the history of redemption. But, says Jesus, we're continuing in verse 11, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And are we all asking how? So, picture it. John is the the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He has a special mission. Until he came, and these are Jesus' words, the prophets and the law prophesied. Think of prediction. Long range, (laughs) all right? They prophesied. Jesus says that, verse 13. What does John do? John introduces. 
For millennia, the world had been waiting. More. Silence had reigned over Israel for 400 years. There had been no direct word from heaven. Yes, they had the scriptures, which we know. Hebrews, is it chapter 4? Living and active (laughs) and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, they had the scriptures. But heaven was closed and the silence was deafening. Then, the time for the promised dawn. (laughs) The promised dawn of the new age comes. And John, he's called the morning star elsewhere in scripture. All right, John, the morning star, he signals the coming of that new day. And what he's doing is pointing to the horizon. He's pointing people to that coming dawn, to the horizon horizon that's starting to lighten up. Then, another then, he who is the glory of Israel, a light for the Gentiles, the day spring, he's called, from on high, the dawn, from on high, he came. A new day after darkness. Years and years of anticipation, years and years of expectation, suddenly answered, expectations realized, hopes satisfied. Think of Simeon in the temple, just seeing the baby Christ. Can you feel it? But John only announced the arrival of the Savior and King of Israel. He only saw, while he was the side of death and glory, he only saw the beginnings of the earthly ministry of his and our Savior. New Testament believers see things John didn't see. Things he didn't see while he still lived. In other words, this is Campbell Morgan's words, not mine. Don't think I'm clever. Clever. Five minutes experience is worth more than thousands of years of expectation. And that's why the glory, the gospel is so glorious. It is that floodlit stadium, all right? And, and, and the light of scripture that comes before the revealing of the Messiah is light. I'm not saying it's not light, but it's a candle power light compared to the light that came in the person and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why And we are heirs and possessors of that that revelation. That's why the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than he, John the Baptist. We're not greater as persons, but we're certainly more privileged and knowledgeable than John was while he lived. I hope we're all on the same page. All right. Fourthly and finally, John acknowledges John's 
sorry, Jesus acknowledges John's success. We're moving into verse 12, all right? The previous verses are commendation in their own right, but verse 12 is the crescendo. We're hitting the high point here. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And remember, this is early days. But even a sniff of the coming kingdom was enough. I want you to think New Year sales. Oxford Street. Think of new iPhone launches. Um, most of us wouldn't be, have been in those queues and in those tents, but I think we, we can identify with it. We've seen the news. All right? What about in days past, the releases of, of, of new uh, Harry Potter novels? You with me? They turned out for John. They turned out for Jesus. Multitudes. Crowds. Why? What was on offer? A new iPhone? No, 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 no. What was on offer? The kingdom of heaven. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. We're talking about what John proclaimed and promoted in advance and what Jesus established and what Jesus' disciples continued to proclaim. And what is that? That's the kingly rule of God in his chosen Jesus Christ on the face of the earth. That's the beginning of the putting of all things right. Instead of upside down as they are for the most part, right side up. It's the restoring of God's rule and order on the face of the earth. And it's what we proclaim, isn't it? And it features forgiveness of sins and peace with God. <laughs> There's no citizenship of this kingdom without those two things. Forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And both of them all through grace and only in and through Christ and then only enjoyed through the empty hands of faith. But there's a second thing I want to say about this kingdom before we move on. It's a real kingdom. Amen. It's not of this world. But it's as real as this building we sit in. In fact, it is more real. Because this building will not last the judgment. This earth will not last the judgment. This real kingdom will never end. Yes, as the parables teach us, it develops gradually, doesn't it? And often very secretly unseen in this age. And it does that in the face of fierce, fiery opposition. And often with very disappointing setbacks, at least as far as we're concerned. But it is heading, brothers and sisters, it is heading for final triumph and perfection at Christ's second coming. But here's the point. In the days of John and Jesus, people were forcing their way in. Now, obviously, not all were takers. 
But there was, and this is an understatement, there was a very positive response. <laughs> That's understatement, isn't it? There was a very positive response amongst those who believed and bought the message. And it deserves, in Jesus' mind, very strong language. Indeed, he calls it violence. He commends it, and he challenges. There's a challenge implicit to his words. He challenges the crowds who are listening to him to do exactly the same. Jesus is effectively saying, look at what's happening. Shouldn't you be doing the same? Now we've got to my second point. Jesus commends violence. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Now, Jesus' language is figurative, right? It's figurative. But it's deliberate. We must not strip it of its meaning. He chose not to qualify it, <laughs> and I'm going to choose not to qualify it, all right? He didn't even say, I'm speaking figuratively. He assumed that he had adults or at least folk who could comprehend and would listen to him uh, maturely, all right? We mustn't strip Jesus' language of its meaning. What are we talking about? We're talking about effort, but more than effort. We're talking about earnestness, a seriousness, but more than mere earnestness and seriousness. We're talking about urgency, but more than mere urgency. How about tying them all together? What about this? It's effort earnestness and urgency with the determination with determination rather and force there's momentum here all right we're talking about forceful determination in other words i'm going to get into this kingdom and i'm not going to take no for an answer and the mental picture we have to have in our heads is siege and invasion Describing the same thing, but on another occasion, Jesus used slightly different words. Turn to Luke 16, verse 16. Luke 16, verse 16. Page 1205. The church or pew Bibles. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Pressing into it. Different occasion, same statement being made by our Lord. Pressing into it. Pressing. Well, we can do that here in London, can't we? Given the train services and bus services we have and the strikes. All right? I want you to think of bus and train strikes. When we have to press in and wedge ourselves into buses and trains if we're going to get to work. And what happens on uh, the most polite nation's platforms on the face of the earth? Well, politeness, uh, normal rules of courtesy and politeness are temporarily forgotten, aren't they? <laughs> we don't look at each other in the eye eyes. We use our elbows to get ourselves into that overland train from Clapham Junction. I think you're with me. Now, why would Jesus 
commend violence. There are at least four reasons. Four reasons. First of all, violence proves sincerity. Clement Freud. I don't know how many folk here are familiar with the name Clement Freud. He's persona non grata these days after he died. But before he died, before the disappointing revelations, I recall listening to him, I don't know if it was Desert Island Discs or what it was, I remember listening to him relate a story about his famous grandfather, Sigmund Freud. When he was a boy, and I believe he was visiting his grandfather in Vienna, it could have been here in London, I, my, my memory's foggy. When he was a boy, he and his grandfather went for a walk, either the streets of Vienna or the streets of North London. They came across a beggar, and as psychoanalysts do, Sigmund Freud stopped and observed then they moved on. So Clement asks his famous grandfather, why didn't we give him anything? And Sigmund Freud responded, not sincere enough. Violence proves sincerity. The half-hearted find nothing because they are never really looking for anything in the first place. At least they're not looking for anything valuable or lasting. So first, violence proves sincerity. Secondly, violence honors the kingdom. Violence honors the kingdom because people only invest in what they consider valuable. And here we turn back to Matthew, but just a couple of pages on to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 verses 44 and 45. Matthew 13, 44 and 45, verses 1127 and then over the page 1128, the church Bibles. And Jesus is speaking, two parables in order. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Then the next verse, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What are parables? Well, they're earthly fictional stories with heavenly or spiritual meanings. That's what parables are. Well, the crowds of John's and Jesus' days and ever since... <laughs> forcing their way into the kingdom and refusing to take no for an answer are the reality that these two parables point to. Not in the sense of siege and invasion, <laughs> but going at great, earnest, urgent. <laughs> I think you know what I'm getting at. Force. Force. So, violence proves sincerity, violence honors the kingdom. Thirdly, Jesus commends violence because the kingdom welcomes violence. Now, this is just the flip side of the coin. If, the, if desperate, needy sinners know of no other way to get what they want than violence, 
then the kingdom wants it no other way either. Christ doesn't say, whoa, 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 mind your manners. No, he is implicitly saying, come on, I'm up for this. I'm up for this. Put artificial politeness aside. Wrestle salvation out of me. You come and twist my arm. Are you getting the message? Christ doesn't need protecting. He doesn't need bodyguards or bouncers. He's not scared of tough questions. Indeed, he invites them. <laughs> and there's a reason why I warned you. The way I'm using these words is to reflect what Jesus is saying. I'm not implying anything more in the use of the words that follow. The hungry and the thirsty can go and plunder Christ to satisfy their hunger and thirst. The angry. They can assault Christ for answers and comfort. And what does he do? Well, like my father did with me when I launched my feet into his shins because my dog had died while I'd been at boarding school. And I was angry. <laughs> but I was angry at my father. Now, I'm not saying that we can get angry with God and Christ. All right? Do you understand what I mean? But what, what did my big father do? My big-hearted father just hugged me as I thrashed. He was the only one I would ever turn to. And he wasn't one to push me away and say, mind your manners. <laughs> he held me in my thrashing. My upset at life, my 10-year-old little disturbed self at the loss of my little dog. I've left my notes. The broken and the hurt can pour out their souls. And his ears are not offended by their shocking tales. And many of us have got shocking tales, haven't we? And his is the only ear that can listen. That will listen without prejudice or with judgment. The long and the short of it all is that the protocols of heaven overthrow convention. Here's a God before whom angels, that sinless angels, fall prostrate. Before whom men, godly men, stand dumb. Before whom, if they can find words to speak, enlightened godly men say things like, Woe is me, Isaiah, or away from me, said Peter. Here's a God before whom we read the heavens fly away. And yet Christ invites violence. Wrestle with me like Jacob, he says, not just to Jacob, but to every sinner. All right, fourthly and finally, if the king, if, if violence proves sincerity and violence honors the kingdom, and then the kingdom welcomes violence, fourthly and finally, the kingdom rewards violence. 
And here I'm just going to paraphrase, and you don't need to turn there, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. We see it on the backs of cars sometimes, at least in South Africa we did. I don't see it. I'm not sure if I've seen it here. Uh, South Africa, more of a sense of God in society generally than you would find around here. But Jeremiah 29, verse 13, I'm slightly paraphrasing. And this is the Lord speaking through his prophet. If you seek me with all your heart, this is what we're talking about, (laughs) with all your heart, all right, you will find me declares the Lord. You see, violence never leaves empty-handed. Lost and broken souls find everything they want in Christ and his kingdom. Of course, they find Christ first, but then everything else necessary to life and happiness comes in him. So what are you waiting for? Those who understand what Christ offers and understand their dire need of it should indeed, they will make it their business to get it and possess it. Now, Ernest Hemingway, you don't have to have read Ernest Hemingway, but he had a short story. I think that's what it would have been originally. It's a long time since I I read it in its totality. It's Capital of the World. And Capital of the World, there's a a Spanish father whose son has run away. The father wants to be reconciled to his runaway son. So what he does is he places an advertisement in a local newspaper and it goes like this. Paco Meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, love, Papa. Now, this is fictional, all right? The father goes to Hotel Montana the following Tuesday, and he is met by a sight that he cannot believe. The police, with reinforcements, are trying to control a crowd of 800 young men, all called Paco. And what are they all doing? They're all waiting for their forgiving fathers. Now, apparently Paco is a familiar name. I don't know enough about Spain when when it comes to Spain. Paco, all right. What's the point of this? Well, sinners do not need personalized invitations to know that the gospel is for them. Everyone in this room is a pucko when it comes to God. Runaway sons and daughters. Either we're facing up to having or yeah, either we're facing up to having run away or we are living in denial. And those who face up to the fact they respond in the only way they know. And what is that? Violent return. So let's say it's Pucko Tuesday here this morning. It's Hotel Montana. And I say this respectfully. Papa's waiting. Will you come? We're closing up now. Thanks for your patience. Have I said enough? Do I need to list the things that Jesus' words rebuke? Hesitation, half-heartedness, passivity, indifference. No, you understand me. Better you understand Christ because it's Christ who's speaking. You go on and you storm heaven because you will never regret it. Now that's for anyone here this morning who is yet to have embraced and believed in Jesus Christ. What about the believers? You're not out of my scopes. 
or rather scope, all right? As we enter the kingdom, so we continue. We entered with faith and repentance, and we only continue in faith and repentance. So what about this morning's truth, this particular angle? Sinners ought to storm heaven for salvation. As saints, they should continue storming heaven for blessing. Will we do that? Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's your last prophet before the 400 years of silence, Malachi. All right? But let's take in this idea or this reality. Not idea, because it's not just an idea. It's a reality. What about the reality of the kingdom of heaven? Right? What is the kingdom of heaven in the context of the entire New Testament? It's the realm of God's restoring rule in his chosen and anointed king, Christ. It's that with everything else that the reality of kingdom involves. Things like citizenship and, and rules, yes, and privileges, most important of all, an everlasting future. What is the kingdom in the context of Matthew 11, verse 12, more specifically? It is something worth fighting for. Not taking up guns. We're talking about the violence of faith and desire, heavenly desire. It's something worth fighting for, this kingdom, till it has come in its completeness. So let's show that, first in our prayers, and then secondly, in the totality of our believing lives.